Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. So here we are. Let me read. We're in the book of Acts, chapter 6. We're going to read verses just, just verses 1 to 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, start with a story about in the Soviet Union. In the Soviet Union, there's a story that was going around. It was kind of a, a fable, an anecdote. And it went something like this. They had this tri- there, there was a lot of theft happening at timber camps. People were stealing things. So to deal with it, they set up guards 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And there's a guard there, and every single night for weeks on end, a man named Pyotr Petrovich shows up with a wheelbarrow and with bags in it. And he's walking in and out back and forth. So the guard comes and says, Pyotr, come on. What, what's in the bag? Show me. And he says, nothing but sawdust. Just sawdust. And he said, show me what's in the bags. And he shows him in the bags. And sure enough, it's just sawdust. And this happens so regularly, time and time again, that the guard takes him aside after a few weeks and says, listen, I'm not going to arrest you. I'm not even going to get you in trouble. Just tell me what you're smuggling out because you're not, it's not sawdust. What are you smuggling out? And the man says, wheelbarrows. <laughs> now the point of the, the point of the anecdote that then and it is for this passage as well is to say distraction is important. What you focus your attention on is very important. And what, where how do you know what to focus your attention on? And this passage is all about distraction. Now, if you're in a community group, you're going to have this question asked of you, and you can discuss it in more detail. I'm going to say this, and it's going to stir conversation. I'm sure this passage is not where deacons are first created. People often use it, and, and it was used when they were thinking about how do you create an office of a deacon. They looked back to this. But here we know that the deacons are not being instituted. And the reason we know that is because the word deacon isn't used as a noun. No one is called a deacon. Quite the opposite. In fact, the work of preaching and the work of serving tables are both called deacon work, serving And so at the moment, what you're seeing, let's not get ahead of ourselves, all you're seeing, and I say all with with air quotes, what you're seeing is a problem that arises in the church that needs attention and needs it quickly. And what the church is doing, what the leadership is doing, is addressing that problem quickly in the way that God seems to tell us how to address problems. 
And what they're seeing is actually it's a distraction. And I'll explain what I mean by that because that can sound negative. But we're seeing how can the church, like it did then, has, we've always dealt with distractions. So how does the church today, not just as a body collectively, but you individually, how do you determine what is a wheelbarrow and what is sawdust? How do we know where our attention should be focused and where it shouldn't be focused, especially in this world where everything is impacting our attention? Not just in time, social media and such will maybe reduce the amount of time that you can attend to something. There's lots of studies about this. However, what it does do as well is not just reduce the attention span, potentially, but it also blurs the lines of what's important and what isn't. And that is right now what's more important to, the, to these, the, the apostles and the church in this passage. They're not worried about the time of attention. They're saying, what deserves our attention? That's the question. So, we're going to see in this passage that this threat that comes, which is a threat to growth and to unity, presents us with the problem of a distraction, the solution of attention, and then the way to multiplication. Okay? And I'll explain those as we go. So the first thing is this problem of distraction. What's happening in this passage? It opens with these wonderful words, in these days. So right away you know that although the, your Bibles has it starting in chapter 6, it's not a new day, per se. It's in these days, meaning in the days of persecution, in the days of growth, in the days of miracles, in this very all at once encouraging and, and exciting time, but also scary time, in the midst of all of this, something arises. A problem arises. Specifically, it's a very simple one, right? These Greek widows, and I'll explain all of this stuff in a minute. The, the Greek-speaking Christian women who are widows are being neglected by the daily support, the, the ministry, the care ministry of the church. And this comes up as an issue, and the apostles have to address it immediately. Now, the issue has three layers to it. It's not as simple as it may sound. So on the surface level, the first one is, it's a layer, the first is, the, is an issue of effectiveness. There was a daily distribution, which it mentions here, which is the daily uh, service, daily ministry of the church, which is they were gathering money. We've heard this in the first few chapters. They were gathering re revenue and money so that they could attend to the needs of people in the community. But somewhere along the line, this money isn't making its way to the specific group, this group of Greek-speaking widows. The money's not getting there. So on the surface level, that's what happens. And it comes and it arises to the apostles' attention through critique. <laughs> through a, it's a grumbling, actually. The word is a grumble. And it does it, and it's not always bad. You see, one thing you have to learn as a, as a leader of any type, if it's parent or in business or in a church, grumbling is not always agreeable, but it often will reveal unhealthy things in the church. And so they hear the grumbling and they realize they have to react to it. Because when God doesn't have your attention at times, it's funny how he'll, he will disturb the things that do have your attention, to get your attention. And so, first thing is effectiveness. There's a problem of effectiveness in the church. The second one is administration. The church has been growing, and it's growing rapidly. And the infrastructure, the team, hasn't grown at the same pace. We know that. There has, it's, it's one thing to have a church of, of five or six people. One of the things I noticed when I come to churches, when I, when I came here, for instance, and it's not an insult, it's not a knock on anyone, was I think we had three or four different membership lists. And there one was being controlled, but not controlled, being amassed by the deacons, one by the elders, one by our office. And those are things that happen in smaller churches. But when you, go, when you start to grow, you, have to, you can't have that many, many membership lists. You need to have everything consolidated. And this is common it gets harder to serve a larger church. And as this church is rapidly growing in these early days, 
it doesn't seem that they have the infrastructure to keep up. At least that's what we assume is going on here. And so they have to deal with that administrative problem. Now the third layer of it is much more problematic. It's a diversity issue. Because we are told specifically that, and I quote, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Meaning, Hellenists, so you may have a little dot in your Bible that says what it means. They say Greek-speaking Christians. And then Hebrews would be Jewish Christians. Now, that, I get it, but the problem here isn't just linguistic. The problem isn't just that you had these Jews who, who were born and raised in Israel who spoke one language, and then you had these diaspora Jews or these other converts who were, who were Christians but were speaking Greek. It's not a linguistic problem, it's a cultural problem. Something is going on here that it lay dormant. See, for instance, if you're born and raised in Jerusalem and you're a Jew who converts, you probably have a deeper connection to the law and the temple because you've grown up with it. If you're a convert who's come in, you may not have that, and there's an unspoken tension that may arise, and I'll give you a practical example. I have not been a Christian my whole life, and so you may notice that I have very little patience for ceremony. So some things that are good, very good traditions of the church, sometimes I am prone to thinking, it's just a silly tradition, who cares? Not because I'm trying to be a jerk, it's because I just don't have culturally, that I haven't been brought up in it, I don't know. That there's, a, that there's something. I, I mean, coming to Redeemer, 75-year-old church when I got here, there's a lot of that. And so similarly, there's these issues. Now, these issues between the two groups lays dormant until something comes that causes it to ignite. And that's the problem that arises is the issue here of one group, the Greek-speaking women specifically, the, the widows, are, not, are being neglected, it says, which is the word for oversight. They're, they're just simply they're falling through the cracks as the church is growing. And this, of course, then gets the Greek men, at least, to say, what the heck's going on here? How come our women, your women are doing well, but not ours? And this then becomes, why else? We know it's a problem of diversity and ethnicity. Of diversity in the church causes head, bump, um, head bumps. And then we know it because they, they tell us. Otherwise, why would Luke bother to tell us that it was one group versus another? And so the apostles have a problem. Because we've been hearing how wonderful the church is. But as it's growing, like every other church, not only is it suffering persecution, not only is there internal uh, issues of hypocrisy and dishonesty with Ananias and Sapphira, but now there's also diversity and ethnic issues inside the church. So if you've ever thought the early church was perfect, it's not. It wasn't. And it's going to get much more contentious as the chapters go on. And so the apostles realize that this isn't just a small issue, but it's actually affecting the unity and the growth of the church. And the, it comes through with them saying something that can, can sometimes be, come across divisively. Because they step in, the apostles, and they say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. And so first we know something. The apostles right away think that this, what's happening, the care for the widows is important, but not something that their attention should be on. And that can sound harsh. In fact, the word right, when it says it is not right, it's actually the word that says pleasing. And so, right, I get it, it is right, I know what they mean. But I'm concerned sometimes if we read right, we think the opposite is wrong. As if caring for women is beneath, or the widows is beneath the apostles. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is it's not pleasing. You see, they have a calling. They know who is their vision and what is their vision. And if they take their attention off of that thing that God is using to grow the church to something that's very good, which is caring for the needy, that's a good thing, but it will distract their attention and it will end up causing the church to not be as effective as it could be. And so they say, it's not our, we can't do it. We need some, somebody has to do this. 
and it rises up uh, to them, and they call it a distraction. Now, the reason it's a distraction, you know what the word distraction means? It's a, it's a compound word, old English word. This means apart. Traction is from this old English word called trahire, which means to drag. So it means to drag something away, or to drag it apart. And what they're saying, the apostles are saying is, it's not pleasing, it's not good that our attention be dragged from what we're called to do to do something that somebody else can do. So there's a problem here. And the issue here is attention. What gets our attention? Not bad or good. You'll notice the word distraction in it has no implied morality. It doesn't say something is bad or good or worse or better. It's not what it says. It simply says, my attention is being dragged away from something. And the apostles are saying, it's not bad, the widows. We have to serve the widows. It's vital. In fact, both reasons, the church is growing because of both ministries serving together. But someone else has to do this work. It can't be us. Otherwise, we'll never do anything well. So what does the word attention mean? Now, there's a, this guy named, um, well, I'll put it up there. It's James Williams. Um, and, uh, oh, sorry, William James. And he was the, so, kind of the grandfather of psychology in the 19th century. And he says plainly, everyone knows what attention is. It's the taking possession by the mind in clear and vivid form, one out of what seems several simultaneously possible objects or trains of thought. Withdrawal from some things in order to deal effectively with others and is a condition which has a real opposite in the confused, dazed, scatterbrained state which is called distraction. So attention is the, the ability we all have to a greater or lesser degree to see the multitude but to take one thing from it and focus on it to see a collage of images, but focus on one and not let the others distract us. Now, we all do this to some extent, and the, the data is, is not entirely perfect, but it is showing us something is happening that our attention is lowering, and we're getting harder to focus on one thing for an extended period of time. In some areas, it's more. There are certain things that still hold our attention, which we'll talk about at the end. But this is the issue, and the disciples or apostles are saying, we're concerned if we get dragged away, if our attention is allowed to go to something else, it's going to address, it's going to affect the growth and the unity of the church. So, this is a need. The care for the widows is vital, it is important. It needs someone's attention, but not the apostles. That's what they're saying. And that's the problem with distraction. They realize that they could be distracted from their main calling. As a church, we see it all the time. Listen, I, I'm not, it's not uh, every single week. It happens. Every ministry, as your family, as a family, for instance, have you not, doesn't matter where you are, have you ever not realized that sometimes very good things come in and threaten to distract you from something good? So, for instance, you, an opportunity comes for a new job. Well, how do you know what job to take? It's a good job. The one you have is good. How do you know which one? Well, how do you know if it's a distraction or not? How do you know what school is a distraction to spend your money on a vacation or to have what spouse how do you know? How do you know what is a distraction? What is important, but what is more important for you? Well, this is the next part. The solution here is attention. So when you have distractions and you're not sure, and the church isn't sure, well, what are we going to do? Is this a distraction? How do we deal with this distraction? You have to identify it and then remove it. Identify it and then remove it. Very simple. So the way they do it is brilliant, actually. And it the church throughout the book of Acts will give us a lot of moments where you get to sit in and watch how they make decisions. And if you watch, you can't take one and say, that's the only way to make a decision. Because they do so many different things. 
So the difficulty of deciding how to run a church and how to ordain people or elect people or make spend resources is complicated by the fact that the Acts has a dozen different ways of making decisions. And so you try to get them all together and make the best decision you can, which is why you have churches that govern themselves differently with elders or with Presbyterian or congregational or membership and so on. And so what they do here, let's just look at this passage alone. I'm not making grand statements. This is the only way to make decisions, but it's certainly a very good one. And the first thing they do, which touches on the, song, the hymn we just sang, is vision. They apply vision to it. See, the simplest way to know what is a distraction and what isn't is to know exactly what you're doing. What are you called to? What is your job description? My job description is something closer to the apostles. And so I have to work pretty hard, and so does the staff and the elders, to try to keep me from becoming some, doing something else, especially with my personality that wants to do everything. And so the only way to know what is a distraction and what isn't is to know where you're going. That's the key. And so, I mean, think of David, for instance, because they're not always bad things. David wants to build a temple for God, right, in Chronicles 17 and Samuel. And even his prophet says, go ahead and do it. It's a good thing. God is with you. And he's like, great, I'm going to build a temple. And then, of course, that night, Nathan gets a, uh, the prophet gets a, a vision saying, no, 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 don't do it. He does. I don't want him to build me a temple. But how does David know? The only way is to say, you have to do the hard work. It doesn't matter how old you are. If you're a kid, if you're a child, you need to start thinking as you grow older, what am I going to do at university? Listen, most of us don't know for the first few years and maybe for the first 20 years, 30 years of our lives. But you think, how do I know what I'm being called to? So I don't waste time. So I, I use the time I've been given. I don't spend time taking courses I don't need to. What am I called to? As a family, what are you called to? Does your family have a vision statement? So that when somebody says something like, hey, there's this opportunity for you to do this, you can say quickly and definitively, yes or no, because it doesn't really align with where we're going. It's a good thing, but it's not our thing. So vision is one of it. The apostles knew, and it takes a good deal of courage for them to go to the congregation and say, it's a huge need, but I'm not doing it. That's very difficult. If you've ever been in leadership, you know how hard that is to say, it's a very important thing, but we can't do it. And that's what they've done. So they knew their vision, what they were called to do. So, next thing is they apply their attention to it. And here's the irony. For a short time, they do have to divert their attention to this issue. And they do, and they jump into it with both feet, and they do it... It's so it's brilliant, really. It's it's, in, it's incredibly wise. The worst, one of the worst things they could have done was to do nothing. Not just because of the practical needs that wouldn't have been met, but then the Greek contingent in the church would have said, "Gosh, they don't even care. They're just brushing this off. They don't value us at all." And so they wisely understand this is a big issue. We have to deal with it. You don't just get the 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 the, uh, the administrators. No, no. You're getting the apostles are now turning their attention to this because it's important. And then, but look, but look, in fact, let me use this. I read it this week. I don't remember who said it, but someone said that um, attention is a meaningful and powerful form of generosity. And I didn't realize it probably because I'm not very good at giving people my attention. I demand it a lot, though. That's how terrible I am. Um, but giving people attention, simply sitting with them, listening to their problems, and then helping address them, that attention is probably one of the most generous things you can do. And they realize that. So they sit, and they listen, they take it seriously. And they also know, practically speaking, you have to cut this off quickly. Because if you don't, it could grow and become a much bigger problem. 
And so a hallmark of the apostles, you'll notice here, and throughout the book of Acts, and hopefully here we try that here at Redeemer too, is if there's an issue at the church, we deal with it quickly, directly. Let's not let it fester. Let's, not do, let's do everything we can to not let unity suffer because of human problems. And they address it very quickly. Then they apply wisdom to it. And this is um, brilliant, again. First thing we notice here is the leaders lead. When they hear of an issue, they immediately do it themselves. The leaders jump in and take hold of it. You expect leaders to lead, and they do. But they don't just do it on their own. They call the entire congregation. This is the first time in the book of Acts, um, or in the, in the New Testament, where the word disciple is now applied to all believers and not just to the small elect group. And so it's an important thing. He, they call all the disciples together, and they say, you're all going to be involved, not as equal partners. The leaders lead. The elders lead. But they do say, we can't do it, so you know the people. It says, seek the congregation. It means look into the congregation and nominate people who you think would do a good job at this. And the congregation then has buy-in. And here's what's fascinating. It's such a strategic choice because every single name of the men they choose are Greek. There's not one Hebrew in the list. Why? Is it accidental? Maybe. Maybe we're not supposed to notice it. But the very fact that it's a problem in the Greek contingent and they ask the Greeks to solve the problem is brilliant. Because now the ones with the problem are part of the solution. And who else, and it's not just political, who else knows the problems better? You know why our missions team has a lot of missionaries on it? Because they are missionaries and they know missions. Do you know why our finance team has people with financial backgrounds? It's common sense. And they do that exact thing here. So it's fascinating they do that. Another brilliant thing here is they take seriously the priesthood of believers. The priesthood of all believers in, in in Peter, is something that the Reformation, when, you know, you know the Reformation, 16th century, it, you see congregational churches popping up. Churches where the congregation has more of an input, more of a say. And that is a gift from the Reformation. Because they took very seriously, especially Martin Luther, that all of you are priests. And by priests, what do priests do? They minister to man on behalf of God, and they go to God on behalf of man. And so as the priesthood of believers... I am the staff, as a staff and the staff, we're not the ones expected to do all the work. We have to lean on you, not just because we don't, we're finite in our capacity, but because we're commanded to do it. You are commanded to serve the church. And it's not enough to even say, listen, I serve on boards at other organizations and I do other things. I give money to this. No, no, I guess good. This family is your family, first and foremost. And you see overwhelmingly in Acts how they care for their own. And so we're all called to serve here because you guys all have gifts that I don't have. In fact, most of you do. I have very few gifts. Very few. Most of us do. But those gifts we have are vital to be used. And so they say, we're going to use the church because not only are we commanded to, but you flourish when you're serving. When you serve in the church, you then first you get to know your, your, your fellow members and churchgoers. The fellowship grows when you're in the trenches together, first of all. Second, it really does a great job of killing your selfishness because you can't look after your, just yourself. You're forced to care for others and have other people's burdens and expectations on you. So it's an important thing in, in many other ways. Now, the key that comes out of this, though, for the solution is the attention has to be given to both preaching and care. The two ministries, neither can be neglected. As far as which one gets priority, it probably depends on which one you serve in and where your gifting is. 
But the apostles are very clear. They both need it. And if you don't have both, you see the effects of it in our modern church in Canada, and even in this region, and within a few kilometers, you can see the problems that happen when they get imbalanced. What ends up happening, really, is the church looks like those guys who go to the gym. They have big arms, but skinny little chicken legs, right? That's what happens to the church. So if you have a church that decides that the preaching of the word is secondary to serving in the community, and so they let that part go and they dissolve a little, you get, those, they get the liberal churches that ends up turning. And see, the, the terror of that is you reduce to human problems in the world to social problems, not gospel problems. You ignore sin. Without preaching, you say, the, our biggest issue in the church, well, our biggest command is to bind the heal, and heal the broken. But if you do that, then it's easy to say, all we're going to do is try to get food to these people. So then you start trying to heal structures rather than preaching the gospel that gets to the root of the problem. Until we have people who actually believe Christ and live for him in hospitals, government, Tim Hortons, wherever it is, you're never going to have healing. Not fully. And so a church that ignores preaching becomes, as I told somebody recently, you're not the United Church, you're the United Way. Because you've abandoned the gospel. So that's a problem. But if you go the other way, and you say, we're only going to preach, that's the most important. You've got to save souls. What's the point in healing the sick? Because you're just gilding a, a cage. They're going to die anyway. And a lot of churches do that. And it, it's unfortunate. Because when you do that, not only do you ignore, obviously, the, the, the compulsion of the gospel to go out and to heal, as Dr. Wendy's already said, but we also ignore the fact that the gospel is meant to heal not just your, your relationship with Christ, but all things. See, the gospel, if the fall is complete, if the fall, as we say as Protestants, mires all human relationships, everything, not just your relationship with God vertically, but all these relationships, it mars sin, it mars nature, so that now you go out into the world and snakes want to bite you and poison you, and there's hurricanes and all these things. If the sin, if the fall is complete, then so must be the gospel. And so a gospel that comes and preaches reconciliation and restoration with God alone, but doesn't match it with going out and trying to bind the broken and to heal the world, is an irrelevant gospel. Because the world will say, well, gosh, thanks for future, but you know, I'm dying here. Like, what is the need here? Is there anything for me here and now? And so we need both. The solution is to lean on the church and to allow God um, to allow God to meet all of our needs. And so the solution is the apostles come with is we can't neglect either. The church is collectively has to do it. If we here at the church find out that there is someone in need and there's a blind spot, and there always are, the answer is sometimes, and we think some scholars say that somebody picked on the apostles and said, You gotta do something about this. You gotta do something. And the apostles probably felt, oh gosh, I can't do it all. And that happens, right? We as leadership get often told, you've got to do it. We don't have this ministry, you've got to start it. Listen, if, you know what happens if I start every ministry and if Janet starts every ministry? You're not going to have a pastor long because my wife will hate me. <laughs> my kids won't know me. And so you'll have your ministry, but you'll lose everything else. And so it's very delicate. And the only way they, they know how to do it is the right way, which is, they lead, but the church has to support it. And here's very simple. Here's something very practical. Sometimes churches will come and say, listen, we've done this ministry for many years. And they say, we should do it again. And I say, we don't have people to run it. And the, the thing is, well, somebody's got to do it. And I said, no, 
If you don't want to do it, it doesn't happen. And that's okay. Maybe that's what God is doing. But we have to be rigorous at times and say, I can't, I can't divert our attention to everything. It's hard as a church, but then you in your lives as well. How do you do that? How do you know what gets your attention? So, let's go now to the, what happens when they do, we've done this. Because they have done it, and the response when they have properly attended to both things, the preaching and the care, when those two things, the two prongs of evangelism of the church have been attended to with full attention from some group, the response in the last verse is wonderful. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So not only is there multiplication, but even the priests who have been so far the most opposed to the gospel are starting to fall. And so God says, now that you understand what deserves attention and who's to give that attention to them, I can work through the church. I can, it can grow now. The answer isn't to deny one or other. And some of us are prone to that. Some of us would have said, by our own inclination, you should give up the preaching. Come on, how much preaching has to be done? Serve these people. And of course, others would say, no, 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 you can't. So serve them, you've got to preach. How do you do it? Well, they balance it. And the response is multiplication. So, how do we do it? The ability to, they, they are able to identify what is a distraction and what isn't. And the reason they have to be so rigorous is because attention is a zero-sum game, as it's called, if you know what that means. Which means, uh, studies are proving very clear, clearly this. You can't, nobody multitasks. It's a myth. Sometimes we think, I'm prone to this, I think I can do a lot of things. But the fact is this, no one can think of two things at the same time. Impossible. Okay, God can do it. My kids always say, God can. I'm like, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> so let's, let's throw that one out for a second. You and I cannot multitask. Studies are very clear. We're good at juggling things, but what we do is I say, I'm going to work on my sermon. I'm the worst for this. I spend like 10 minutes of my sermon, and my brain goes, oh, but what about this? I'm like, put that aside. Send this email. Put that aside. Do that. So what happens is you're not multitasking. You're just putting one thing down at a time and picking up another. The problem with that, of course, is not only does it increase your stress and heart attacks and all of that in people, but you're actually, what it means is it takes you longer to finish a task, and you never do as good a job, because sometimes what is required is sustained attention. You have to really pour into it. You have to give everything to it. And so, and if you don't, if you don't do that, you do, it's Winston Churchill, as usual, says, you'll never reach your destination if you stop to throw stones at every dog that barks. And he's right. And when we look at the question of how do we gain, what, what, is the, what does hold our attention as human beings? Because we've got social media, we've got all these things, we have family needs. How do we know? Here's one thing that the studies have, are unanimous about. The one thing that holds your attention best of all? Stories. Stories hold your attention better than anything. And why is that? It's because stories trigger your emotions. Stories demand and they immerse you in something into a world, whatever it is, and they say, imagine yourself in the story. Feel what the characters feel, and you start to invest yourself in it. And as the story winds you up, you can't leave it. This is why you can binge watch 10 hours of Netflix, but you can't spend five minutes talking to somebody. That's part of the reason. It's because stories are, and listen, people know this, and people are taking advantage of it. Did you know, I was talking to Sarah, do you know, have you ever noticed this? I'm going to I'm going to reveal something to you you may not have known. Have you ever been watching something on Netflix and you notice the, uh, the um, introduction, the intro is way louder? The sound is like really loud? 
That's because Netflix knows that you're probably on your phone. And so they jump up the volume on the intro or on the commercials because they're trying to get your attention. And so they're not stupid. They're taking advantage of this. But this is why the story thing, I think, is so important for us. is because we're flooded with stories. As you look at not just social media, everything, you watch CNN, whatever your favorite news thing is, I don't care if it's a right-wing obscure guy in his basement that you trust, or if it's a media thing, I don't care who it is. You're all being sold stories constantly, even by people you really trust and are really good people. Sarah and I talked about this last night as well. So for instance, if you're a, a, a mom and you're a homeschooler and you're, and you're listening to um, uh, these video logs or vlogs from a woman, now she, it's very good information, it means well. But you know what happens if you watch 10 or 20 of them? The message might be really good, but what you may not notice, and they're not intending even necessarily, though the, some people are intending it, is every one of those homes as they're talking behind you is a perfectly clean kitchen. Or every pastor you listen to in their office, they have a lot of books up there, right? And if you see that over and over, what is the story you're getting? Yes, their message is good, but a mom who has it all together has got a perfect house. The pastor who has it all together has read a lot of books. And there's stories being flooded constantly with you, with our kids. It's everything. A kid, to be all put together, you better know exactly what you're doing with your life. You better be open to gender fluidity because that's culture. Stories are flooding us constantly. How do we know what deserves our attention and what doesn't? Because the lines are being blurred constantly. Now, this is another reason it's important. Here's a a Christian philosopher, Alistair McIntyre. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part of? This is the We do this in the faith and work class. If you don't know what part of a story you're in, you don't know how to make decisions. Because every decision you make is based on the story you think you're in. Every human being, this is another well-known fact, like it or not, we all see what's unfolding before us as a story, and I'm the main character. We all feel that way. And so, the question is, what sort of story are you in? And Christians have this, the reason the gospel cannot stop to be preached, that I cannot, I have to resist the urge to do other things, It's because the gospel is the story that tells everybody who they are and how to make decisions and everything. It's the most wonderful story. It's the most perfect story. It's the most unique story because it tells us who you are, why you suffer, and that there's hope for it in the end. There's hope. And this story is so unique. It's so attractive and so winsome that that story must always, always, always be pushed into the world into our families, our own hearts, into the community, into the airwaves, any way we can, because it's a counter story to every other story. And so the apostles understood that. Yeah, they didn't understand social media, of course, but they did know the message can't stop. And it's not because it's not important to care for widows. That's vitally important. But there's other people called to that. And so they knew they had to do it. So how do we do this well? First, you will preach. I'll use preaching and care, both sides. You will pre- First, what, what, what is required is this. You all will sit through Netflix. So the problem isn't that I have to preach shorter sermons. The problem is I have to, well, first you have to do some legwork and actually try to attend. I then have to be very careful. This is my craft. Pastors, this is your job. You better be really good at it or as best you can. You have to try to get better. How do you, how do you not manipulate people, but how do you show people the beauty of Christ because he is beautiful? How do you show them how applicable the gospel is to their lives, every ounce of their lives, because it is applicable? And so the onus on me is not to preach shorter, but to preach better, 
And the onus on you is all to not, not just to uh, force yourself to attend, but stare at Christ. Because the more I find him beautiful, the easier it is for me to tell you how beautiful he is. And the more you realize how much he has cared for you, how much you have benefited from his mercy, his grace, from his church, from everything, the more you're going to start to want to care for others. And so the answer is found in doing something radically countercultural. Put down the phone and read your word. Spend time with this body. Engage yourself in the word of God. Be present in God. What, they, what takes your attention is what you'll become. The Psalm 115 says it. This is not new. You be, people become like the idols they serve. And distraction, make no mistake, is an idol an embryo. Because whatever you give your full attention to is an idol. Is, is, your, is your God, right? And if in that moment, what is my God is this video, this whatever it is, that's it. That thing you attend to. So there is an effort that has to be put forth, but it's an effort that comes after grace. You've been saved, you've been loved, you've been cared for, you've been healed. Everything is taken care of for your eternity. So now you can attend. It is possible because you have the Holy Spirit, and you should have every motive to do it. Now we fail. That's why you need the church. That's why you have to be here. That's why we pray together and care for one another and people call each other. We need the help to do it. Christians, learn the story. Skeptics, if, you're, if there's any skeptics here, Stop jumping from story to story. Have you ever noticed? I remember as a student, I won a scholarship once for a paper I wrote. And I remember thinking, I can learn nothing more about this topic. It's a history, a piece of history. There's nothing more I can learn. Then I become a Christian. I thought, surely there's something I must be able to do that I can't get to the pinnacle of. Like there's, everything was unsatisfying when I studied it. And then I become a Christian. I realized, oh my goodness. I can't even get near this. I can't even put my toe into this. There's so much. Stop giving yourself, giving your attention, this generous gift of your attention to things that don't deserve it. Give your attention to the one who gave all his attention to you. That's the gospel. Incredible. Let's pray.